This morning we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Uh, I am going to begin, though, reading uh, in chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. Uh, some of it is because it, it just to set some context. If you were here with us last week, we, we looked at, uh, at, at part of this here. Uh, and uh, so if you weren't here with us, then this is a, a way for you to kind of under, get what's going on in, in the context here. Uh, and if you were with us, then it's a refresher of what we, of, of what we looked at last week here. But before we read, let's, uh, let's again come before God and let's pray. Father, we pray that in this time where your word is, is spoken and read and preached, that you would be transforming us. We pray that Jesus in his likeness and his beauty would just shine forth here. We, we need to see that. We desire to see that. And we trust that you will show us that. Lord, your spirit goes forth also with, with the word. Your spirit goes forth to make it effective. And we, we, we beg once more that you would do that. The man preaching here also, we pray that your spirit would be upon him as he uh, as he preaches, so that your word would, would go forth clearly and carefully and faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to begin at Mark chapter 8, verses, starting at verse 34. Go to Mark 9, verse 13. Uh, this is the word of God. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses... And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Amen. Well, the day of, uh, about six years ago, August 21st, 2017, 
I don't know if you remember what you were doing that day, but I was, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, helping to pastor in San Diego at that time, and I was coming out of a coffee meeting in the middle of the day, and I walked out, and sure enough, the sky was darkened, which was strange for August in Southern California. But you may remember, though, on that day, it was, there was a, the, the, a total solar eclipse that had happened uh, that day, all across, seen all across America. Maybe you remember where you were. Maybe uh, you remember uh, looking up, hopefully with some, some sort of goggles on or glasses, uh, and seeing the, the strange phenomenon of having the sun uh, being blotted out, you know, in one sense, or obscured by the moon passing through. And for up to two minutes in some places... Across America, the sun was completely obscured by the moon. And in one sense here, there's a similar trajectory with that to the sun, but the son of God. All right, the one who etern- in, through eternity has uh, had a radiant glory in the heavenly places, the son of God there. But yet for a time, for a very small time actually, his glory and his radiance and his light were eclipsed for a bit, by the humanity that he took upon himself and came upon this earth, where he lived and ministered and took on on human flesh and lived among fallen humanity. But then again, though, that someday again, his radiance once again will shine forth in his exaltation when he returns again, that day when the Son of God will no longer be eclipsed, right? The transfiguration of Jesus here gives us a glimpse of that glory, the glory of uh, and a view of the Son, the Son of God being uneclipsed, uh, shining not just before uh, the, the, the a few disciples here, but shining before the whole world. All right, and, uh, here we have this, this secret moment that, that's happening here. It's a private display of that, that, that light and radiance of Jesus Christ here. It's a private display for just three of the disciples. And we look at the transfiguration, we look at this whole event, and sometimes we wonder, what is it actually about? I mean, certainly it's an amazing display, right? I mean, the disciples are stunned to the point of, of being terrified. Right? Peter can't even like think coherently. Well, let's build three tents for you all. How about that? But it's more than just this this simple display of light and glory and awe. It's a revelation of Jesus. Jesus is revealing something about himself to these disciples. And revelations always have an intent, don't they? You're trying to reveal something. You, and that's the same with Jesus here. He's trying to get at something. What's he getting at? Like, why did he do this in the first place? And when, what does this have to do with, with us? Why is it, I mean, Mark obviously thought it was important for him to put it in here. What does it have to do with us? Well, it's a display of the kingdom of God coming in power. And then we see also the radiance of the glory of the king. In verse verse 1 there, Jesus says, Some of you here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God in power. Until you see that the king, right, right now, the kingdom has been obscured for these disciples in one sense. Uh, even though Jesus has been going, uh, going around and, and he's been healing, he's been preaching, he's been casting out demons. But there's been a sense, though, where, where it has been obscured a bit. But, 
But now Jesus is showing the glory, the outward visible glory of his kingdom and of himself, the king, going forth. This is now that the kingdom of God empowers. He will come back in power, radiant and shining. And what's happening here, too, is, is this whole event of the transfiguration is consistent with Old Testament events that we see of God's presence coming down in power. Right, of heaven coming down and touching earth. All right, now, it's, uh, you, you see that, that theme over and over in the Old Testament. First of all, of a mountain, all right, of God's glory coming down on a mountain. We have Mount Sinai, God's glory coming down and touching earth, heaven touching earth at Mount Sinai. Uh, we see it at the, the temple, which the temple was constructed on a, on, on, on a, a mountain. All right, or or a high, an elevated place, not a mountain like we might think of it, but it's a higher place there. In fact, even Eden, the first temple in one sense, because that's where the presence of God was and where heaven and earth were, 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 were created and put together in this, in this way that could only be ripped apart by, by, by the fall. That's also described in later parts, not in Genesis, but in later parts of the Old Testament as being like a mountain. But it's not just a mountain there, but it's also a glory cloud of the Lord would come down upon the mountain, like at Mount Sinai, right? The glory cloud of the Lord comes down upon Mount Sinai. It filled the temple, right? Um, the, the, the glory of God was seen in Eden. But then here we have the glory of God shining forth so radiant that people couldn't stand, right? The people around, uh, the Israelites around Mount Sinai looking up and we don't want to go up. Moses, you go up for us. Uh, the, when the, the glory of God filled the temple, the priests were just overcome with, with it all and had to run away because they couldn't stand to be there. And it's the same thing that's kind of going on here in the transfiguration. It's on a mountain. Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John, takes them up to, to the mountain. In fact, also we have uh, there Moses and Elijah who were, were standing there with Jesus on the mountain. Both of them were at, at Mount Sinai. Uh, or in Elijah's case, it was at a different name, Mount Horeb. But they were both there when the glory of God came down upon it. Uh, the, glory of, uh, uh, the glory cloud of God came overhead there. It overshadows at the end. Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and the voice came out of the cloud. It's the, the glory cloud of God coming down and touching earth there in that moment on that mountain. And the glory of Christ shining forth, striking fear in, in, the, in the disciples. Again, Peter's like just stunned. Right? This, this display this incredible display of the glory of God here. What's happening is this is an image of the kingdom of God coming down in power. Of, uh, uh, an image of heaven and earth being reunited in one sense for a temporary time there. right? Heaven touching earth. It's, it's the kingdom of God there in this way that, mo- that, that was much more visibly on display than just simply Jesus going and healing. It's for, it's for maybe not all to see, but it came forth, though, in light, in glory, in beauty. And who's at the center of it? It's Jesus. Jesus is at the center. He's the one radiating forth the glory and the light and the beauty in fact, Moses and Elijah are there, and they're both talking with Jesus, but the focus is on Jesus. Now again, Moses and Elijah are there talking with him. What do you think that they were talking about? Wouldn't you love to know what that conversation was about? Well, I think it's this. 
Because Moses was, was associated, particularly in Deuteronomy 18, with the idea of, of speaking ahead. There was going to be a coming prophet. A prophet better than I am. There's going to be a prophet who's going to come here and who's actually going to restore the hearts of, of the people. And then you have Elijah, who was a prophet, who came after Moses, in one sense was kind of that one who was, who was talking about there. A prophet who came and was, was associated with trying to restore the, the hearts of Israel back to, to God. But here, so, both of them here, both of these two prophetic figures talking with Jesus about restoration. Restoration associated with, with a prophet. You know what? They're talking, about, they're talking to Jesus about Jesus. They're both, you know, imagine them both, they're talking with him about, hey, remember that thing that, that I was talking about before with the Israelites? Hey, remember that thing that you were doing, Elijah? Yeah, all that. Jesus, it was all pointing to you. And he's like, yeah, it was. Isn't it beautiful? Can't you see the, 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 the beauty of the plan of God all of this time? See, they're talking to Jesus about the work of Jesus, the one who they both spoke of, the one who was going to be the promised restorer, the one who would restore the hearts of the people who would bring heaven and earth together. Jesus bringing heaven and earth together once more, restoring the broken gap that, was, that happened at Eden where the glory of God and humanity, fallen humanity, couldn't exist with one another anymore. In fact, a glory way better than Eden, a glory of exaltation and presence unlike, unlike Adam and Eve or any of us even know about and, uh, the, than what we've experienced, but of God and humanity reunited more closely than, they, than we ever have been before. And how does that happen? By the cross and resurrection of Jesus. By Jesus taking upon us, or, or sorry, taking upon himself everything that we have had that have separated us from God, that has separated humanity from God, taking it upon himself and having it crucified with him. His resurrection, right, the glory of life shining forth. And this is the, the, the cross and resurrection is the means then for the kingdom coming forth in power and glory. And so Jesus is here revealing his glory. He is revealing the kingdom of of God in glory. This moment here when, where Christ is uneclipsed, the Son of God is uneclipsed and his glory shines forth, the visible glory with which he will return someday. But there's still this unanswered question though. Why would he give the disciples a peek? Why would he show and reveal all of this stuff about him? Well, for three reasons. This is the first one. To encourage us as we follow him in our sufferings. He shows them this to encourage them, to encourage us as we follow him in our sufferings. And an important context that we, need, that, that we need to think about again, which is why I read that last part of chapter 8. The important context that's happening right here beforehand. Taking up the cross and following Jesus, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right, this is, they're, they're thinking here, first of all, the disciples think, well, wait, remember, if you remember from last week, wait, we have a, a suffering Christ? When Peter said, you are the Christ, this wasn't in his mind. He wasn't thinking about a suffering Christ. He wasn't thinking that discipleship and following after Jesus meant death. And this was really confusing for them. It's totally had, it was an entirely different category for them. And their confusion is actually picked up again at the end and in, uh, in verse 9 through 13, in chapter 9 there. 
Well, how can it be true then if, if all this, how can this be true if Elijah hasn't come? All right, what's wrong here? What's, what's going on? And Jesus says, well, no, the, the Son of Man will suffer and Elijah has actually come. Okay, it's already happened. So, and in fact, actually the, the, the prophet Elijah, you know, in one sense has come here. He's not talking about the actual literal prophet Elijah, but he's talking about John the Baptist, one who came in the spirit of Elijah, one who was, who was, was, was preaching repentance and trying to restore the hearts of the people in preparation for the salvation of the Lord coming in Jesus Christ. And there he was then. Jesus is saying that, you know what? Elijah suffered it too. Not just the, the Elijah in the Old Testament who was who was, was chased around uh, Israel by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. But you know what? The, the newer Elijah, John the Baptist, he suffered too. Remember what happened to him? He got arrested and he got his head cut off. Okay? So suffering for disciples is, is nothing new. John, it was nothing new for him. Elijah, it was nothing new for him. And so that's just what disciples do. Disciples follow after uh, the Jesus who also suffered and who died. It's a redemptive suffering. It's not just suffering for the sake of doing so, but Jesus suffered redemptively. And that's the reality of following Jesus. Remember, it is willfully taking up the cross as the path to glory in Christ. Discipleship involves death. Something in us has to die when we follow Jesus. That might mean for some people giving up their lives, but something has to die in us. Our own desires, our own ways of life, our own dreams, everything in our life has to be reoriented around Jesus. Everything. And that means that there are some things within us that maybe just have to die. And then it goes, and then we, we continue reading that in this, these verse, this verse in 38 here. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, I remember the, reading this verse for the first time when I was in college. And I don't know if it was the first time I'd ever come across it, but it was definitely the first time where I read it and was really cognizant of what it meant. And I'll tell you what, I was terrified. I read that verse and I was absolutely terrified because I could look at myself and realize just how ashamed I really was of Christ. As someone who was, who was, was a Christian, I didn't even say a committed Christian, I was deathly terrified. I was trying to, to do more reading at time and I would take a, at my, my lunch breaks at work and I would try to be, be reading some Christian books and I'd be, you know, in one sense taking it with me, holding it along the way as a way of proving to myself of that, yes, I am a disciple, right? I've got, I've got a Christian book right here and then sitting in the break room and then trying to read it in a way that would not actually show the cover because I didn't want anyone to see what I was reading or to start engaging with me. I was terrified. But here's the thing. Guilt and fear-based discipleship isn't helpful. Guilt and fear-based discipleship is actually crushing. Right? Fear-based discipleship, which is what I was kind to engage in, fear-based discipleship results in what? In fearful disciples. Guilt-based discipleship, what do you think it results in? Guilty disciples. I was 
fearful. I was a guilty disciple. And so that when following Jesus becomes um, difficult, as he says it will, what do fearful and guilty disciples do? What do they do? They act out of self-preservation. They don't act out of love. They act with their own interests in mind. They may not like it. They may not want to. And you know what? That just means the guilt continues to be put upon them over and over. Or they just simply give up. Or oftentimes they just burn out because it's exhausting. But there's a better way of discipleship, though, that reflects what Jesus wants. Not guilt-based, not fearful, but it touches the positive, the positive affections rather than the negatives. See, Jesus offers something good. He offers something better in exchange. He talks about losing one's life for the, his sake and the gospels. Why? To save it. Right? Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. All right? And he says, at that time there will not be shame then for those people come, when, he, when the Son of Man comes, but he will come and will delight in them. Because what he offers here, what he sets out, the positive vision of what he has here is glory. It's not just following the Christ. It's not just following the Son of Man in death. But it's also following him as the means of life. And following him in his cross and means also then following him in his entrance into life and to glory. And so what is it that brings forth actions out of real, true conviction? It's not guilt. It's not fear. It's reaching for the positive. It's something good. Right? Countless stories, real stories, myth, novels uh, of people doing great things at great personal cost. Why did it come? Not because they felt guilty, not out of fear, but it was out of love. It was out of conviction that came out of love. Why did Sidney Carton in, in, uh, um, in Tale of Two Cities, why did he give himself up for Charles Darnay? Because of the, the love of Lucy. Why did Sam Gamgee and Frodo Baggins continue on with the ring all the way to Mordor, even though it nearly killed them? Because Sam and Frodo had a better idea, a better vision of life and goodness and the green things that grow rather than shadow and ash and fire. How many stories can you really think of where the main protagonist did so out of guilt? But you set before someone a positive ideal. You set before them the true and the good and the beautiful. And they will act out of true conviction. Reaching out to attain something better. That's what causes people to rise above the mundane parts of their lives. That's what makes bold disciples. That they are living not to die, but they are living for glory. And when following Jesus is difficult as it is, as he says it will be, Guilt and fear won't help you. But looking beyond, though, this life, looking beyond to glory, that will bring comfort. That will bring conviction. That is where true discipleship happens. It's pressing on in order to receive eternal comfort that comes in glory. And the transfiguration is the glory, then, of Christ. It's the glory of the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God coming in power. It is the Christ, the Son of Man, in His glory when He will return in the glory of the Father on that day. All right? And so following means being crucified with Him, but it also means being raised with Him as well. 
being raised with him means being glorified with him. And, the, and this here is a glimpse of that glory. When Jesus is standing there transfigured, it is a glimpse of the glory, the shining glory, the overwhelming glory of the kingdom of God coming in power, of the glory of heaven and earth being reunited once again. That's a glory that is to be shared with faithful followers and faith-filled followers as they're looking for something better beyond the sufferings of discipleship in this life. It's something good for us to keep our eyes upon. It sees that, sees glory as the, the good goal. And that's what results in endurance. It's something to chase after, something to pursue. In Hebrews 11 it talks about the Old Testament saints who over and over had, had looked ahead in faith to what God had, had in store for them, what God was going to do. And so many of them have these, these great things. You know, they, they, they shut the mouths of lions. They received, uh, women received their, their, uh, their, uh, their loved ones back from the dead, right? Enemies were, were conquered. All of these things, this long list, and then it begins to, to change. And some were sawn in two. And some were thrown in dungeons. And some of them were, went around in rags on the earth. And were, um, and were, but it says, though, that those were men of whom the world was not worthy. See, none of them received in anything glorious or wonderful or beautiful in their earthly lives. But they were able to endure as they followed after God in faith. Even through incredible suffering of being sawn in two, of being thrown in dungeons. Because they looked in faith to something better. They looked ahead to what God had promised them. They looked ahead to the coming glory of the Lord. Friends, the only way that you can have joy in discipleship, it's not through fear. It's not following him through fear, but it's with love and hope. Right? People train with a goal in mind. Right? It's that positive ideal of wanting to cross the finish line, of imagining doing so, maybe doing so first, or maybe it's just simply crossing a line. Or maybe it's reaching some sort of goal, whatever it is. But training and exercising for that goal changes perspective on the pain that you inevitably go through with training. It pushes through, right? The enjoyment is, is part of the, the process, and that's different than fearing the consequences of failing or of missing a day. See, it's all in the mindset, isn't it? And disciples are able to endure much more. They're in, able to endure even with joy by knowing the coming glory of Christ. But second, though, of what Jesus shows us here in, this tran in the transfiguration is that he shows us the glory that he's transforming us into. He's also showing us the glory that he's transforming us into. Again, the radiant glory of Christ shining forth in this stunning way. But what's also stunning is the promise, though, that he gives us of being transformed into his image. Of being made more in the likeness of Christ. The image of his glory. Are you going to reflect the glory of his person, his, his character? His, his holiness, his, whole shine, his full shining forth. See, the Christian life is about being transformed. Transformation happens in different ways. Certainly, transformation happens with the new life that we are given as we are brought to life, right? We are transformed from death to life. We are brought to faith. That's transformation. 
Transformation also happens in positionally or by our status. Because by that faith that we are brought into, that we are justified. We are given a new position before God. Not as guilty people, but as people who are brought into life and freedom. We are, we are acquitted before God. We are actually made daughters and sons of God. Right? There's a positional status. But we're also transformed in, in the person as well. We're being transformed and restored in all of our person as, into the image of, of Jesus. In 1 John 3, 2, uh, uh, the Apostle John writes that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. At his return, we will be shining like him with the same glory. The same glory as this transfigured Jesus. Now think about John as he was writing that, the Apostle John, he was there. He, he saw the glory. Can you imagine? What was he must have been feeling as he was writing those words down? Oh, we're going to be shining with the glory of Jesus when he comes again in power. Oh, the excitement, right? The love, the anticipation that all those, including himself, but all those who are in Christ will bear that glory. It's a glory that will overshadow all of the sufferings in our life. It is a glory that will restore all the ways that we have been stripped of the glory that humanity was first created with. Or the ways that we as, as humanity as a whole have been stripped from that glory because of, of not just our sins, but our sinfulness. The miseries of life that we go through. The sorrows. Everything that's awful and sad in this world. Glory heals those consequences. Glory heals all of that. It brings us into new life. It's a glory, though, that will also cover all of the ways that we have been denied dignity, even by others. The words that have been spoken to us, the words that have been spoken about us, that have stripped us of our dignity, the things that people have done that have dragged us through the mud, the, pe- the things that people have done that have crushed us, and even those things that have been done in secret where no one else knows except them and myself. The things that have been done publicly even also. All of those things there, a glory will cover all of that. No matter how broken, no matter how seemingly inglorious our bodies are right now, all of those who are in Christ will bear this glory because Jesus stripped himself of his glory so that he might give us his. He stripped himself of his glory as he went to the cross, as he came into the world, and as he went to the cross, as he suffered for us in a very inglorious way. But why? So that we might have the perfect glory of his life and his righteousness. Friends, he was not only crucified, he was raised and he took on glory as the restorer of the glory that has been lost from humanity by Adam all the way back in Eden when heaven and earth were torn apart. The glory of, the, of the, the coming day of when he returns, that glory is ours. And yet we also we already experience the transformation right now uh, into his glory. It's not something that's just for someday. It's not a far off ideal, but it's something that happens in the everyday moments of our lives. A transfiguration, or you talk about that here, the, the transfiguration of Jesus. What does that mean though? It just simply means tra- Transformation. In fact, even in the, uh, the original Greek language, the word transfiguration here 
is the same word that's used in Romans 12 too, when the Apostle Paul writes, be transformed, be transfigured by the renewing of your minds. See, there is this call for us to be pushing forward into glory, right? God's call to us that he tells us is, is push forward, but also though, the, the, it's God's work in us is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? Being transformed and transfigured into Christ's glory. That's, what, that's what's in store for us. But you can't renew yourself. It's, you're passive. We can't renew our own minds. It has to come from the work of God. It has to come from the Spirit. It has to be from what God is doing in us. And that's how Jesus transforms us into his image. He does so by the Spirit of God working in us. It began at our first believing of the glory of God shining into our dark hearts. The Spirit doing his work there. And then their continued growth in Jesus is continued growth in transformation and transfigured more into the image of Jesus. It's the the work of the Spirit, the continued work that happens forming us into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. And his spirit is always with us. And his spirit is always working. He does not sleep or rest even though we may. And that's the the promise of hope even in the most mundane circumstances. Even in the everyday moments when you're standing in the line at Fred Meyer. And you're frustrated. You know what? The spirit of God wants to work right there. How is the image of Jesus Christ being made? How might that be formed in you in that moment? When you're having a difficult time with your children, how might the Spirit of God be working to transform you in that moment into the glorious image of Jesus? Frustrations at work, whatever else it is, little difficulties with your neighbors, how might Jesus, even in those common mundane ways, how might the Spirit of Jesus be transforming you into the image, the glorious image of Jesus? See, it happens. Transformation happens. Real glory and real growth happens for believers. We ought to expect it. No one is too far gone. And if you look at yourself too, you are also are not too far gone. The Spirit is working in you too. And so what do you expect in others? How is Christ forming the image of his glory in you? How is he forming it in others? And how can we find and look for the fruits of that? As it's happening. The third, finally, why the transfiguration, but to assert the importance of listening to Jesus. The glory of Christ shining forth here. And then God's voice speaks out from the glory cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yes, of course. I don't need anything more than that, right? I don't, you don't have to tell me twice. Of course. But the thing is, though, we hear so many different voices, though, don't we? We hear so many voices all around us. We hear voices inside of us. We hear voices of misplaced glory. We hear voices of guilt. We hear voices of fear. But disciples don't listen to those voices. Disciples listen to Jesus. And Jesus gives us here the reaffirmation of his promises to us. The voice of Jesus continues to speak through the word. Uh, the Spirit-inspired Word of God in the Old Testament and New Testament. His words are the guide for us, right? Not as a manual for life, but to focus, though, us on the God who renews us and has given us His promises. We're reminded of, through this word here and the words of Jesus that we have a God who is holy. We have a God who commands. 
But we have a God who is transforming us into Christ's glory to reflect his holiness. Now think, what must, what must have this done to their faith for Peter and James and John? What do you think this was doing for them in that time? I mean, what would that do to your faith? If Jesus transfigured himself before you and you heard the voice of God the Father, what impact would that have upon your faith? What would that have for you upon in, in the, the difficult times? Thinking about the promises of glory for you. Well, in 2 Peter 2, or sorry, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, which is what we had in our New Testament reading this morning. It's a reference here to all of what Peter saw at the transfiguration. He heard the words, this is the, my, my beloved son, listen to him. He saw the glory, and yet despite all of that, his, those are his words. He says that there is a testimony, a word that is more fully confirmed than what he even saw there on, on, that, on that day. And that's the spirit-inspired word of God. See, what we have is better than what Peter saw. Those are his words. That's not mine. That's Peter. And he was there. What we have is better than what Peter saw. Because Christ is revealed in it more fully for our faith than if we were on the mountain ourselves. We are given there. We see the whole Christ, all of Christ, the whole Christ for the whole self. And what you need for faith then is in the word of God. It's faith all the way from beginning, how it's formed all the way to the end of your life. Growth in knowledge and in holiness comes from the word. Growth in knowing Jesus himself comes from the words of Christ there. Growth in your affections towards him. Growth in your life and the way that you live as a disciple. It's found in there. And he speaks the promises of life and of glory to you. Glory though that not, doesn't, that's not on our own imaginations. But glory though that comes from the mind of Christ himself. That's what faith is built upon. It's built upon his promises of life and glory. And discipleship is formed and faith is strengthened by the words that he gives to you. See, we're not just given memories, but we're given a living word. We're given a living word for a living Christ. The Christ who suffered and died, who is raised and ascended into glory. And who holds out that hope that to all sinners who come to him. And that one day then, as the sun is uneclipsed once more, once and for all, eternally, for everyone to behold, he will look on you without the shred of shame. And he will raise those who are trusting in him into the same radiant, awe-inspiring glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we, you would give us a yearning for this glory. For your holy, heavenly glory. A glory doesn't come from ourselves. Not a glory from our own desires or dreams. But a glory that comes from you. And give us that yearning as disciples who are in need of transformation. Be at work in us, Spirit, to continue to transform us into that image of Jesus. The glorious image of him. Re reorient us in all of our lives as being followers of that. Let us not be guilty or fearful disciples, but let us be ones who are filled with love and anticipation. Prepare our hearts as we come to the table here very shortly. In Jesus' name, amen.